Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 31, The Tremendous Good a Publicly Sponsored Insurance System Can Do. My guest, Donald Barrick, MD, has a Master's of Public Policy and is a Fellow of the Royal College of Physicians. He is President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, an organization that Dr. Barrett co-founded and led as President and CEO for 18 years. He is considered one of the nation's leading authorities on healthcare quality and improvement. Dr. Barrick is a pediatrician by background and has served as clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at the Harvard Medical School, professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health, and on the staff of several hospitals. He has also served as chair of the National Advisory Council of the Agency for Healthcare Research and quality. In July 2010, President Obama appointed Dr. Barrick to the position of Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and he served as Administrator until December 2011. Dr. Donald Barrick, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Great to be with you, Joe. Thank you. So I'd like to start. You were the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama. Could you explain to me why the Affordable Care Act was structured the way it was? Sure. I can I can only speculate about it because I wasn't part of the team that put that back together. I arrived after it had been passed. But I think it represents a compromise. Uh, President Obama had apparently decided that one of his key Legacies. He wanted to be the expansion of healthcare coverage in America. We had 50 million people who weren't covered, so he was seeking legislation that would make healthcare closer to a human right in the United States. Plus, there were some other changes um, in the activity of the government in helping improve the quality of care that were also part of the act. To do that, he had to win over enough uh, support to get a majority in Congress and public support, and so that involved compromise. For example. I believe one of the early ideas was to have a public option so that people could buy into Medicare. Uh, that was abandoned. Uh, I, I assume that was because of opposition from the insurance industry, which wanted to keep the action. And so the fundamentals of the Affordable Care Act rest largely on expansion of commercial insurance, uh, affordable commercial insurance. Uh, another example would have been the negotiation rights of Medicare. One could have saved quite a bit of money by giving Medicare a chance to negotiate drug prices. That was not part of that bill, and I assume that was partly a concession to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, the bill did not fundamentally change the payment levels or patterns of payment to physicians or not much to hospitals, and I think that was an attempt to win over the hospitals. So case by case, I think you can look at the elements of the bill and see what was crafted to win political support. That's how you get legislation passed in Congress. And did you support the ACA? 
Yes, very much. Uh, like I think most clinicians, uh, you know, I'm very concerned about a country which is still the only Western democracy that doesn't make healthcare a human right. And it's it's not just an embarrassment, it's a tragedy to leave tens of millions of people out of coverage. So I supported the coverage expansion. Also, my, my career uh, has been devoted to trying to improve the quality of health care. And I know all too much about some of the problems we have in quality in this country. Problems like patient safety hazards, uh, lack of use of scientific data in clinical care, patient uh, absence of patient-centeredness. And I saw in the Affordable Care Act a number of opportunities to accelerate progress toward the improvement of care. So I, I don't think it was a perfect step forward. It was a compromise, but I think it was a step forward, and I was delighted to be associated with it. And you have since come out for a single-payer system, or what is also called Medicare for All. What has led you to change your approach to support single-payer? Well, several things. Uh, and by the way, we'll talk later about it. I don't think Medicare for All and single-payer quite exactly the same idea. We'll come to that. But I think three things uh, made me made me move into that direction. First was my experience in Washington. I got to run Medicare and Medicaid. I saw the tremendous good that having a publicly sponsored um, insurance system can do. I mean, we could, we could do things to secure care for individuals, uh, extend preventive care, protect people by looking hard at quality of care. These were things we could do because we were a public agency, and I thought all people should benefit from that. A second, and actually more important than that, was I ran for governor in Massachusetts when I uh, got back from Washington, and um, I, uh, I got a look at the state budget in Massachusetts, and I saw how difficult it was for the state to maintain investments in really important things like education and public higher education and early childhood education and uh, infrastructure working on our public transportation system. And the reason was the state costs of health care in Medicaid and the, the coverage of state employees was just eating into any other possibility. And if we wanted to have progressive policies in the state that would work to improve communities, I had to find the money somewhere. And the only responsible way that I could see to actually reduce healthcare costs without harming anybody would be to simplify the system. And so I began to advocate for at that level, a state level, single payer system. Um, I think the third is my interest in the kinds of changes we need in healthcare. We really need to focus on prevention and upstream causes of illness and kind of move some of this resource around. And I don't think we're going to get to do that unless we are able to get money into a single pool and then invest those resources where they're needed. It's very, very hard to do that in a uh, in a multi in a complex multi-payer system. And um, and I think we need some pretty big changes in care that will help people far more than we can at the moment. Wow, there's so much there that I would love to cover, but I would like to start by moving to some of the falsehoods. And one of the things that I found interesting is that you mentioned that you thought a single-payer system in Massachusetts would save money at the state level. Yet one of the criticisms of Medicare for All or single-payer is that it'll cost money. So from your work or studies, how much money do you think Massachusetts would have saved if they would implement a single-payer system at the state level? Well, I assume that the situation in Massachusetts is about as it is in the rest of the country. 
So the way to answer that question that I choose is to look at waste in healthcare, things in healthcare that are actually spending taxpayers' hard-earned money without any benefit at all, not helping patients. So there's a number of pots of waste. The biggest one is administrative expense, and we can start with that one. Uh, generally, scientific research on levels of waste of waste in American healthcare suggests that about a third of our money is being wasted. We're spending over three trillion, so I'll say roughly a trillion dollars of, is waste. About I would estimate two hundred to three hundred billion of that trillion is administrative complexity that doesn't go away entirely, but it gets severely reduced in a single-payer environment. You don't have multiple billing processes. In fact, in some cases, you don't have any billing processes at all. You don't have the complexities of appeal processes and finding out if someone's covered or not. Everybody's covered. You don't have differences in coding. All of this is eating into the efficiency of the American healthcare system. So at the national level, two or three hundred billion. At the state level, uh, you know, I would say something like five or maybe 10% of the total state expenditure on healthcare would be reduced by that administrative simplification. That's just the first way that you save money, but I think it would, the saving would be big. I think a lot of the benefits also come from being able to invest in more coordinated care, more continuous care, so people aren't being dropped because they're changing their insurance or because they're falling between the slats. A single-payer system would allow you to craft much more integrated care. So those two pots alone are saving a ton of money. I would, I would guess that the state would be able to save it in, in the midterm, not absolutely day one, something around 10% or 15% of its total expenditure by going to a single payer system. Even if it's 5%, that would be a ton of resources that could be devoted to other uses at the state level. Plus, people are saving time and everybody is covered. Yeah, and you're not wasting the time of, of the workforce, doctors and nurses who are spending, you know, they're spending a substantial percentage of their day filling out forms and going through billing and appeal processes and pre-approval processes, and you could simplify that, that a lot, and that means you're using the workforce more efficiently, which itself is a way to save money. So I, I think it would be a win. No one knows exactly how big a win, but I think it would be substantial. Let me say I've interviewed several doctors for this podcast, and all of them always complain about how much time they have to waste fighting insurance companies. That's a really big deal, and that would just basically go away. Yes. Uh, well, you still have to administer the national insurance system, the, you know, the, the, the public system, and that doesn't, so it doesn't totally go away, but a lot of it would go away. And there's also be more transparency and accountability, so you'd know where funds are flowing, and you, if you didn't like direction things were going, you could change it as a matter of policy. We have good, by the way, empirical studies, uh, really high motion studies of doctors in doctors' offices. It was a major one published by Chris Sinsky uh, at the American Medical Association about a year and a half or two years ago, I think, uh, which he was showing something of the order of two or three hours a day of physicians being devoted just to record-keeping and administrative processes, that time should be spent with patients, not with paper. One of the things I'd like to discuss with you is what have you seen as the major falsehoods that opponents of single-payer propagate? Yeah, how long have you got? Um, I mean, 
a lot of people oppose it. And I think, by the way, let me just say, a lot of the opposition is good is good-hearted. I think people are legitimately worried, and they need their questions answered. And there's an education process that's just respectful. But I think there are people who are ringing alarms quite knowingly that aren't part of this. One big one is that having a single-payer system, which is which I would call national health insurance, that's a way to think about it, a national health insurance system, uh, would be a government takeover of health care, that you often hear that phrase. That is really far from the truth. Health care delivery, your hospitals, your doctors, your laboratories, your ambulances, those don't, those aren't taken over by the government in a single payer system. The delivery system remains, if you wish, the same. Uh, you're only proposing to have the, 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 the government take over the insurance function, the payment function. So that's one deception. Government taking over your health care. No. Government becoming the insurer for everybody. Uh, second one is that it, that it would raise costs, especially in the single-payer debates in the presidential campaign. You hear these numbers thrown around, $30 trillion over 10 years, $40 trillion. Well, you, that's a deceptive conversation because we're talking not about new money. We're talking about a shift of the flow of money. So that same money is now going into the payment system. It's coming because it's coming in the employer contributions to health insurance, out-of-pocket contributions to health insurance, in a flow that is pretty opaque and pretty hidden. The advocates for a national health insurance system are saying, let's take that same money, and instead of having it flow through these, frankly, somewhat hidden channels, we'll move all that money into, into the government program, where the government now is your insurer. And in fact, most of the calculations that I believe in show that the total amount of money being spent would then go down, partly because the administrative costs we talked about, with savings going back to workers and, and, and to uh, companies that now pay for health care. So that those numbers, they're numbers about the amount of money that may shift from the current private flow to a public flow. I understand that. And that's a, that's a conversation we have to have with the public, but it's not new expense. And I think that's a big deception. Uh, a third is that it would somehow hurt Medicare. So, you know, Medicare is one of the most popular public programs we've ever had in this nation. Uh, elders like me love it. It's a great, it, it is single payer coverage for me and it's great. I think somehow the conversation got distorted when we said Medicare for all. It would be like we're going to take the identical Medicare system and now everyone's in it. That's not quite the way we need to think about it. We need to think about what a national health insurance system for everyone would be. And the current Medicare system, the way we're paying the Medicare uh, for the care of elders, we could leave that the same or change it if we wish. But it's not its not an attack on Medicare and it's certainly not a loss. It's a gain for many, many others. Another is that the government would do such draconian underfunding of care that care would be hurt. I mean, people say, well, rural hospitals will close or doctors will leave practice. No, not necessarily at all. On the contrary, if we had a single-payer system, a national health insurance system, and we felt rural hospitals were vulnerable, we could then adjust payment to keep the rural hospitals vibrant. Right now, we can't do that because the payment system is so, so messy. So you actually get to solve problems that currently are very severe with respect to paying doctors or hospitals. How foolish it would be to cut payment levels to the point where doctors leave practice. Of course, you, you wouldn't do that. You need to have a payment system that is attractive to the people that give care. It may not be the same as it is now. It wouldn't have as much waste in it. And we might want to push back very hard in negotiating with drug companies, for example, 
But the concept somehow we're going to strangle the delivery system, that's just not true. We get a chance to have a rational conversation of where we want to put the money. Well, you hit on some very important points. And one of the things, too, is for hospitals that are in poor areas or underserved areas, we could actually fund them properly. So healthcare would likely improve in those areas. You get the opportunity to have more logical, more supportive payment flows than you do right now. So I personally believe that uh, under a national health insurance system, we could improve the well-being of rural health care much more efficiently, much better than we can in the current environment. The other thing I think that you said was important was your point about it's a shift of money. The way I like to describe it is just moving money from one bucket to another bucket, and then in that other bucket, we actually need less money because it's more efficient. And that's, yes, that's the overall, that's exactly the overall vision of this. There's one other thing I'd like to address about the falsehoods, and that's the point about delivery. And as you pointed out, we are changing the way we finance health care, not the way we deliver health care. But I would argue that currently we have a corporate-run health care system because the insurance companies are deciding what care you get, often without basing it on medical decisions, but just on cost decisions. And I've talked to a lot of doctors who feel that way. Could you just quickly comment on that? Yeah, well, one of the benefits of having a national insurance system would be uh, transparency because we don't actually know the, the decisions that are going on. No, we're not in the decisional pathways of the commercial insurance companies to know how they decide what to cover and what not to cover. Sometimes it's regulated, but a lot of it's not regulated. Running Medicare and Medicaid, you're in a fishbowl. You, you really, you know, your decisions have to be public by law. We can do that in a national insurance system which would increase knowledge. We'd know where money's flowing to whom. We could have better knowledge of results. The other equally important matter to me is, I would call it, opportunities to invest. And we can see that in the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was not national health insurance, but it did expand the um, coverage for many people under law. And it also had provisions that allow us to, to, to help change the care. For example, it's absolutely true that today there are lots of people in institutions, nursing homes, the long-term care settings, where they actually could be home with their loved ones if um, we could move money to support home-based services, home-based care, home-based facilities, home-based professionals. Well, in the Affordable Care Act, we got to do that. We actually had many, many projects and programs which which had thousands and thousands of people now able to move home from institutional settings and be much happier and, by the way, usually lower cost. So you get to ask questions about where the money, where you want to invest the money. And that's not just, that's not a matter of regulating care or protocols. It's a matter just of, of thinking hard about where you want the money used. In the private insurance system, you really can't do that. It's too complex. And since private insurers can basically pass costs through to the payer, to the taxpayer and the employee and the employer, they don't have as strong an incentive to actually figure out what's best for the people. That was my job, running Medicare and Medicaid. What is best for the 110 million people that we were covering? That's what I went to work thinking about every day. I didn't have shareholders, didn't have to worry about the stock price, and it was a much liberating environment for moving resources where the resources are needed. 
G. Putting patients first. What a radical idea in our healthcare system. Yeah, it's patients, it's families first, communities first. We work with communities. We could now say, you know, uh, to a rural area, you know, how can we help uh, with investments and supports there that allow people not to be dependent on inpatient settings that they don't want to be dependent on? Of course, one of the things that's going on right now is the coronavirus. And one of the big things is how people pay for testing and treatment. And how do you think that a Medicare for All system would help that or hurt that? Well, well many ways. Um, it would uh, help, right? I and mean, I think the, uh, you know, the failure of National White House leadership now in the coronavirus era is really costing us a ton. Put that comment aside. If we had a single-payer system, and we could do a couple things. First, upstream, we could have prepared for this better. We could have had. There's a whole bunch of issues in this country around preparedness. Coronavirus may be the worst we've seen right now, but it's not the only 21st century threat. And we have no way to invest in a healthcare system and supports that are prepared for this kind of stress. Um, we're just running a gerbil cage of productivity and production in healthcare instead of saying, wait, where, how are we going to invest in the future? Number one, a national health service system could do that. A national health insurance system could do that. Uh, second, coverage of everybody. Right now, as uh, conferences are canceled and hotels come emptier and airlines are shutting down, and think of all the dislocations of people who depend, who live hand to mouth for their incomes, people who don't have the benefit of an ongoing salary during this period of time. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to go to sleep wondering if they get coronavirus, they're going to be bankrupt, that they won't be able to find health insurance? National health insurance system covers everybody. Nobody has to lose sleep because they're going to be unable to afford their care. And right now we're struggling. How are we going to pay for testing? How are we going to pay for individuals who need care but don't have coverage? Well, that all goes away. We finally have justice, equity, true universal coverage where people can rest easy about at least that part of their lives. Coronavirus is just raising the vividness of that problem, and there are going to be a lot of people hurt medically, but also financially, and that would go away if we had a national health insurance system. That's not one of the things people right now in countries that have universal health coverage are worrying about. Do you think that with what's going on with the coronavirus will cause more people to support a single-payer system? I don't know. I think a lot of people are going to find themselves at a great disadvantage. And if we have public servants and political uh, leaders who are able to make this case, maybe yeah, people say, ah, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. I don't have to lose sleep about coverage in a national health insurance system. I don't have to beg and borrow to try to get the test I need or a payment for a hospital stay. Maybe people will realize they would be, so many would be better off. Um, is there anything that you would like to add that we may have missed in this discussion as to how you think Medicare for All would help? No, you've covered a lot of the territory. It just allows us to take what was currently 15 or no, 18% of our economy and begin to ask really important questions about where we want to spend that money to help people, not to help corporations, not to help stockholders, not to help, you know, keeping the status quo just in place, but what changes we want to introduce to help make care and health better for people. 
I say that in, in interrogating a single-payer proposal or any proposal, there are four questions you should ask. This is the way we should ask about the question. Number one is, does it cover everybody? If not, let's change that. Let's get everybody covered and join other Western democracies and be the nation we should be. Health is a human right. Second, does it improve quality of care? Does this invest in much better care for people, much more patient-centered care, more home-based care, more care that is safer care? With a national health insurance, you can do that. You can have projects and programs to improve care. Third, does it allow us to move some resources to causes? Healthcare is like a repair shop. People have heart attacks because of conditions in their lives, the food chain and the exercise and recreational opportunities and stresses in their lives. People end up in trauma because of violence in society. We have a broken criminal justice system, and that's creating tremendous problems in mental health care and substance abuse. And in a national health insurance system, we could decide actually to put money where it's needed to prevent things. Can you show me other proposals? I'm happy. I'm wide open. I'm, my mind's open. And the fourth goal is reduce total cost. We're spending nearly twice as much as any other nation. That's because of waste. A lot of the waste is administrative. There's other forms of it. Let's ask about a proposal. Does it reduce cost? I say a national health insurance system would cover everybody, improve quality, allow us to put some resource, more resources into social determinants of health, and it would reduce total cost. I'm wide open to other suggestions. And one of the things to keep in mind is there are countries that have healthcare systems that perform better than ours that are not single-payer environments. And I'm not falling on my sword on the single-payer idea. I don't think it's like the only way to get better care. I think we should ask very trusting and respectful questions about other things we can do to improve care. So I, I don't think, especially at this time, when it's so important to have a change of administration, I don't think at this time anyone should be falling on their sword on the single-payer agenda. I just think it's better. And I think we need an ongoing, respectful, mature national conversation about whether this is the way this country should go, at least in the long run, if not now. And I think when we cool down and look at what kind of country we want to be, I think it's going to look awfully attractive. And on that note, Don, I would like to thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much, Joe, for your leadership and your help for understanding this important area. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.